I thought that in my sermon today, I would let you know a little bit about myself so that you would know, as a Texas Baptist, who represents you and who, you have, uh, been, who has been elected to be your president for the last couple of years. And what's interesting is I had the unique uh, opportunity or privilege as to having served the shortest term as Baptist General Convention president from November to July because of our summer meeting, which we do every five years, And now I will have served the longest term. I will serve from July all the way to November of 2014 when we will reconvene right here in Waco. So for at least another five years, I'll hold the record, okay, on that. But it'll be the same two years uh, anyway. Uh, My background is not like most backgrounds. Uh, I'm not the son nor the grandson of a preacher. I didn't grow up in church. My dad was a research geoscientist who wrote textbooks on petroleum engineering and environmental engineering and geology. He found a lot of oil in the early days and in his later days he was an environmental engineer and he said he cleaned up the messes he made during the first part of his life. Um, My parents uh, were part of the 60s Cal Berkeley scene They were pretty radical. My dad uh, was a U.S. envoy uh, to China for a while. What's interesting about me, and some people don't know this about me, is that uh, I am the black sheep of my family, so to speak. My parents have never heard me speak. I didn't grow up in church. My dad has Alzheimer's now. My mom's in a wheelchair. They're in a rest home, and I am their primary caregiver. Growing up, our family always seemed to keep a safe distance from religion and church. In retrospect, we watched science fiction on Saturday nights and Sunday nights as kind of a Sunday school class. That's what we did. In high school, I took a semester of English that was Nobel Prize authors, and then I took a semester of Shakespeare, and to my relief, they offered a science fiction course after that to kind of rest a little bit, I thought. And so what I did is I had two books in that science fiction class that made a difference in my life. Remember, I'm not part of the church. I'm not part of a Christ-following crowd. And I read two books. One of them was Huxley's Brave New World, and the other one was Orwell's 1984. Along the way, our parents, we had served over in Europe a little bit, so I was a little bit familiar with the English-European frame of thought. And when I read those, they seemed to agree on some things that constituted a good society, but they had different concerns about social control in the world. 1984, the folks were controlled through an evil system that at that time I thought stereotyped and probably did the old Soviet Union. Brave New World, the folks go along with a systematic evil society And they're distracted by Epicurean entertainment and pleasure. 
They have so many choices that they don't understand or even realize that they're being controlled. This is a stereotype, I believe, then, even now, of the United States. And what's interesting, my high school English teacher, Natalie Huckabee, was quite a radical because there were some parents who wanted that book burned. She was a radical. I found her recently. She's 97 years old, and she's still teaching Sunday school in a Baptist church. One of these, I called her on the phone, and I'm going to visit her someday. She was quite the radical then, and I'm sure she is now. Reading those two books, my interpretation of satire from our Sunday school lessons on Sunday nights and Saturday nights in my family, listening to lyrics of rock and roll music with my brother, uh, my brother, older brother's testimony was that he, uh, he was a little bit older than me. He, he's since gone on to be with the Lord, uh, but at the time, we weren't Christians. And he would talk on and on about his pilgrimage to Woodstock and what that did for him. And so I made my decision not based upon the Bible, but I made my decision based upon high school English rock and roll, uh, satire and science fiction in Woodstock that I wanted to be a difference maker in the world. And I asked myself, was I going to be a space taker or was I going to be a difference maker in the world? Now, I've got to tell you, this is kind of funny and you're supposed to laugh when I tell you this story. Both my brother and I were National Merit Scholars. And when I was on the road trying to choose the college of my choice, I had an opportunity to go to Rice University. Well, I visited Rice, and I thought they were strange. So I went to Texas (laughs) A&M. In retrospect, that's more funny than than probably anything I've done in my life. It was in college that my life was transformed by the power of Christ under the ministry of Dr. Richard Maples at First Baptist Church of Bryan, Texas. I embarked with my soon-to-be wife on a pilgrimage to make a difference because Dr. Maples said... In one of his sermons, we live in a brave new world, but what we need are brave new people to challenge and transform that world. I was in a brave new world, and I was bombarded by choices. I felt freedom, but I understood, because I understood my background, that my freedoms had been conditioned and my view toward those freedoms had been conditioned and my worldview was not necessarily my own in the making. Here's a point that you probably need to remember along the way. Greek philosophy and philosophers still rule the world from the grave. Principalities were at work then, even in the church, and I would find out, even as 
the Apostle Paul tells us today, even maybe sometimes more so in the life of the church. Alfred North Whitehead once noted the safest general characterization of the European philosophical tradition is that it consists of a series of footnotes to Plato. Principalities at work. Listen again to Paul's warning and challenge to us. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental forces of the world. And that's a very challenging construction there, or basic principles of this world, rather than Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Elsewhere, Paul admonishes the Ephesians to put on their armor. He says, suit up and get ready to go out and make a difference. Because you're going to be fighting against these kinds of things, against rulers and powers and world forces and spiritual forces that have their roots in evil. Do you get the idea that these elemental philosophies masquerade as truth? Not only then, but in our society, I do. And it's almost, I think, as I read Paul with a a twinge of irony here, that he is asking the, the folks not only in Colossae, but also the Ephesians, to not be taken captive when he himself is physically captive, imprisoned. My late brother Bill told you about had a very, very high IQ. He would be a beautiful mind type. He went on to become an engineering physicist. And he died of things that were related to his schizophrenia. Had a very difficult life. My wife and I ended up being his caretaker in his last days. But I have to tell you, I learned a lot from my brother where he took and how he taught me along the way. You probably have never had this illustration, and I can remember Dr. Gregory back in, at Southwestern Seminary, when we would preach in his preaching class, he would ask us to make sure we had credible sources. Well, I don't know how credible this is today, but it's reality. Let me tell you about what happened along the way back in the 70s. I was upstairs, and the smell of Kalitas was downstairs. Hippie lettuce. I could smell the smell. Our parents were out of town. My older brother, Bill, was, he had gone and he had retrieved the Turkish water pipe that my dad had gotten when he had visited over in Turkey. And he had filled it with that smell type stuff. And it was wafting through the house. I remember going downstairs, and he and his cronies were around the water pipe, and they were singing 
the Leonard Skinner song, That Smell. Can't you smell that smell? I had listened to that song. I didn't smoke hooch or anything like that. You see, I did all of the right things for the wrong reasons. It wasn't because I was a Christian or anything, but I knew that that was destructive. And I went down, and I remember telling my brother, I stopped them, and I said, don't you understand what that song is saying? It's not talking about the smell of marijuana. The song lyrics say, don't you smell that smell, the smell of death around you. Talking about the culture that was very, very prevalent in the mid to late 70s. I can remember quoting Led Zeppelin to my brother because I didn't know anything about the Bible. I knew about Led Zeppelin, though. And I knew I had listened to Stairway to Heaven. And I looked at him and I said, It's still time to change the road you're on. I digested that not only for myself, but for my brother. N.T. Wright says it like this, and I'm going to leave this to the scholars here at Truett. Um, Dr. Gregory, I know you think I'm picking on you today, but I can remember being in Dr. McGorman's Greek class. It's about time you got picked on. And um, in Dr. McGorman and Dr. Vaughn, I had them both for one semester, and they argued back and forth. They bantered more than two two New Testament scholars in the world about who was the smartest Greek student that ever donned the doors of Southwestern Seminary. Was it Joel Gregory or was it Clyde Fant? I mean, I I can remember them arguing and arguing. So, Dr. Gregory, I'm going to let you tell us, not today, not publicly, but whether or not Dr. Wright is right. But his idea is this. Paul is using a wordplay here. It would be like this. The 17, like if the 17th century philosopher John Locke would be critiqued as, don't let Locke lock you. That's the phrase. Paul is suggesting that don't be synagogued by the synagogue. Don't be taken captive even by those people who call themselves the church. Be careful. I like to think my theology is biblical and consistent, uh, but it's not systematic. Y'all know, you guys know that systematic theology is only something you learn in seminary. When you get out into your church or you get out into your ministry, you're going to realize that systematic is not what it's about. It's integrated. It's incarnational. You systematize things in order to learn them. But your theology, what you learn, what develops here and goes beyond this place will define the way that you practice ministry. You may not think it does, but it does. It will drive you. Mine is a strange mix of theology because this is what I did as a seminary student along the way in different places. At first, I tried to incarnate James Leo Garrett. He was my theology professor. Then I took John Keweed and I became Emil Brunner for a while. Then I met at Midwestern Calvin Miller and 
Then I took classes with Dr. Glore. Is Dr. Glore here? I don't know if I see him. We have to call him out too. Larry Baker, Ted Peters, Stanley Grintz, Virgilio Elizondo. I remember morphing back into Paul Tillich during existential days. And then, all of a sudden, when everybody was going reformed, I picked up my Wolfhart Ponenberg, and, and I decided I was going to see what this reformed stuff was all about. And then, my Mississippi roots kicked in, and I met John Perkins. And then as my children grew up, I read them Dr. Seuss. Calvin Miller said it, I'm kind of becoming myself in the making, and my theology is not theirs, but it's mine, and it's developing. And out of all of that, I do what I do in ministry, and we need you to do the same thing. In the past 10 years of ministry, my perspective has changed. I have discovered that in my perspective, I have gone from just doing preaching from the pulpit to advocacy. I discovered that I was abstracting things like principalities and powers and spiritualizing them. And unfortunately, I discovered that like my brother, even though he wasn't a Christian, he despised things that were abstracted and just talked about and not acted upon. I found myself preaching about things but not doing anything. About it, or equipping people to do anything about it. I was abstracting elemental philosophies like racism, immigration issues, poverty, human trafficking, pornography, and I was leading those to whom God had called me to be stuck in a way of thinking that promoted being a safe distance from those things, from those principalities a safe enough distance that it kind of was uh, safe to talk about those things and learn about those things, but not actually do anything about them. And I found out that those are the kinds of things I was doing that kept us as a church separated and alienated from one another and alienated from really reaching the world. Now, I share religion, I know, all too often as an abstraction. I sometimes obscure God more than I illuminate God. It's like people aren't accepting God because they don't understand the God that I am sharing. I get so wrapped up in beliefs and ideas that I somehow remain a safe distance to what those beliefs and ideas actually point to doing. 
Does that make sense? I, I stay behind them. In other words, I care about poverty, but just yesterday I drove by a person that was poor and begging on the corner. I'm jaded by empty philosophy. I care about things like love, but unfortunately I don't fundamentally express love the way love needs to be expressed all of the time, especially towards the world. And I believe abstraction begets evil, keeps us from experiencing things directly. I can remember in a doctoral seminar at Midwestern Seminary, Larry Baker in the, late, in the early 1990s, it was during the beginning of the, the beginning of the first Gulf War, and Dr. Baker decided that instead of us having our seminar in the classroom, what we were going to do is convene in front of the television set and watch the war and talk about the ethics of war. I'll never forget some of the things he said. He said, by abstracting war, the news makes it sound like some sort of thing like weather and sports. There's a benefit to this. You grow in wisdom and compassion about it. But in my estimation, those principalities and powers need that abstraction to survive. They don't go confronted as Paul asked us to do. We get stuck in that abstract way of thinking and that real relationships serve the purposes of the principalities. The powers. No wonder Paul, when he named the enemy, he named the enemy Satan for sure, but he also called on things like principalities and powers, and he said for us to suit up our armor. The real tangible structures of injustice have to be and need to be confronted by the transformational power of God in Christ, who is the head. Dr. Jack McGorman would always tell us that the problem of our world will never be double-digit inflation, but always triple-digit greed. That's the world in which we live. You know, the only good way, otherwise good way, to get good people to accept war and exploitation is to do what? Talk about it. And do nothing about it. Abstract it. Keep a safe distance from it. I believe I have a quote by Nijay Gupta here. And by the way, as a student, in the Smith and Hellwitz commentary, I'll just do an aside here, he does the, the commentary on Colossians, and he has... A tremendous, in my estimation, exposition of what these philosophies are and how we interpret them not only then but now. 
He says, Christianity is neither an opiate for the masses nor a unique approach to the set of ideas about God. When Christ came to the world, he changed everything. Remember, the new wine could not fit in that old covenant wineskin. He changed everything. And our calling as missionaries, our calling as Christians, our calling as preachers is to clarify what and who these structures are and tangibly confront them instead of keeping a safe distance. Otherwise, you know what people say in the local church? I'll tell you what they say. Preacher, that's just the way things are. That sounds like an elemental philosophy to me that has its roots in evil and some sort of weird philosophical platonic root. I was pastor at First Baptist Church of Del Rio for a number of years along the border of Texas and Mexico. I have a real passion for things along the border. Maybe over uh, lunch and we talk, maybe we can talk about some of these things and unpack some of these things, but it was there I realized that these principalities existed not only in the world, but in the church. Would you believe that in a community that was... 98% Hispanic, that the First Baptist Church of Del Rio had never had a Hispanic staff member in its history. Racism. By the way, I would consider that a principality. So what we did was We worked our way to bringing on the first Hispanic associate pastor the church had ever had in its history. I'll never forget the business meeting. I'm going to be very candid here. There were 250 people, I believe, at that meeting, and there was a petition signed by 17 members that I needed to be fired. I'd only been there a couple of years. I needed to be fired because I was trying to make this church a Mexican church. I got 17 negative votes that day, but we stayed another four years. I'll be pleased to tell you that just recently, The person that followed me, it took them three years to find another pastor, but the person that followed me, they now have the first Hispanic senior pastor the church has ever had in its history. Confronting the principality and the problem. We need you in our institutional churches that exist in Texas Baptist life to be people that will step up to the plate and and speak the truth in love to this. We dealt with human trafficking. We developed an underground church. 
We dealt with payday lending. I was talking to Dr. Garland before, and I even have two hits out on my life on the Texas-Mexico border for confronting those types of principalities. Didn't mean to, but I promise you, if you decide that you want to embark, not necessarily in the world, but in the life of the church, and remember, Paul said, don't be synagogued by the synagogue. What our churches need are people like you to help us transform them in the name of Christ. You need to listen to your professors here. I tried to use some names today so that you'll know that these guys actually do know what they're talking about and implement the things that they passionately teach you. Most recently... At First Baptist Church of Commerce, where I am now, I dealt with these two issues. You would think you go from the border one way to the other, get to East Texas. Now, over this past year, we have had 56 people come to know Christ and be baptized in the life of our little church. We've tripled in size in the last three years. But we've not reached the type of people that the establishment would like for us to reach. You see, it used, we, I live in a college town, and it used to be that all the professors went here. Now the professors aren't required to live in commerce. They can live in places like Rockwall and other places, so they don't. So our town is 80% poverty-stricken with a university that has 12,000 students in it. So we decided what we were going to do is we were going to lovingly confront So we decided that we were going to embark on reaching people, and as we reached people, three-quarters of the people reached were adults, and the majority of them were not white. Had two families come to a deacon's meeting six months ago, and I wasn't trying to make the church, a Mexican church this time. We need to get rid of the pastor because he is baptizing, he is baptizing these people, and the word was, can they vote in a business meeting? Are they really members? Folks, this is not... 30 years ago, this is six months ago in East Texas. Principalities are there. And you as a young seminary student, as a young minister, you can ignore it and go out and form your own church and that's okay. Or you can get into the life of the church and transform it and change it. That's what we need from you. As a Texas Baptist leader, we need you in our churches to transform them. 
I survived that. And by the way, I'm okay because I know people along the border. Y'all hear me? Don't mess with me, man. I know people. You hear me? Be careful. The last thing. We had a group of people a month ago. Because of our growth and the number of people, we have people, and, I, and I'm saying this in love, okay? This is in love, but I know that principalities and powers and elemental philosophies of the world are everywhere in the life of the church. We have people in our church that homeschool their kids. We have people that private school their kids. And we've had an increasingly number of kids who come off the streets who can't afford to do that who are public school kids. And we had our private school kids and our homeschool kids and a coalition of people come and want to have segregated church. Folks, these are the churches that you will go into. Not all of them are like that, but they're there. The only thing I could do was open up James chapter 2 and read it and weep, literally. You know, when Jesus looked out on Jerusalem and the word that he uses there is not weeping like at a funeral, it's a boo-hoo. I boo-hooed in front of my deacon body in the children's committee. And even after that, the vote was split. And we decided to go on like we are going on. This is the principle. No principality is a match for God's transforming power through his people. going to go over these quickly with you. I know you have Dr. Garland, uh, Dr. Diana Garland. You have the social work folks here. I know that. But I want you to know as Texas Baptists, we have lots of resources. Gerald Davis deals specifically with community development and poverty. Y'all need to get to know Gerald Davis at the Baptist Journal Convention of Texas. He has taught, he has forgotten more about community development than I'll ever remember. Look at the Christian Community Development Association website. We as a church have been embraced with Communities First, and basically what we did is take the old fishing analogy. You know, give them a fish, teach them to fish, that kind of thing. We decided to do this. We decided to give them a fish, relief ministries, direct handouts, food, pantries, clothing, drives, yes. But we decided to go deeper, and we decided to teach to fish, life coaching and skills, things like case management, mentoring, developing skills. 
we went further and we decided to ask the question, what's the condition of the pond, the environment, the sights and sounds and smells of the neighborhood? Let's clean it up. Let's repair things. Let's get rid of some of the bad graffiti around town. What about this? What about the watershed? The laws, the programs, the policies that keep people poor. The systems, those are our principalities that prevent them from making progress. We had one in the town, no double garages allowed in this neighborhood. Hello. Ownership in the pond. Differences between the poor and the middle class. Let me give you a little illustration. Let me give you a story. And I know my time's running out, but I got one shot at this. Okay? We have a policy that says that we're going to wait 24 hours before we pay anybody's electric bill, even if it's a church member. Okay? If it's an emergency, a real emergency, we'll do it. Had a guy come in from the church. Couldn't pay his bill. They're going to cut my bill off. We're not going to pay it. Wait 24 hours. I was cursed. I was the seed of Satan. I was, I didn't feel as a pastor. I had no passion or anything like that. He ran out. He called people, griped, whatever. Well, guess what happened the next day? They cut off his electricity. And you know what he realized? You can live without electricity. So we took our team, went over to his house, and sat down with him and said, now let's talk. Let's talk about how you got here and what we can do as a church to get you where you need to be. It's amazing what a captive audience he was. And now he has gotten his life turned around. perspective. Access to the pond. And finally, evidence of a transformed community. Close with this. This is my final illustration. This is a picture that has sat in my office in front of my desk for nearly 30 years. It's the church at Ovures. It's a Van Gogh. Back during the days where I was not a Christ follower, I was a big follower of art, and I still am. But the amazing thing about this, and if you know anything about Van Gogh, he was rejected by the church when he sought help from the church. And although this slide doesn't show it exactly because you don't see the depth of it, 
This church has no entrances. It sits on its own shadow. It neither receives nor reflects light. I look at that every single day and say our church is going to be a church where everybody can find the transforming power of Jesus Christ. I hope and pray that that's the kind of ministry that you will embrace. We need you for that. God, thank you so much for allowing us to be here today. Thank you for your love for us, for the principle from prison that our dear brother Paul wrote to us. And may our lives conform to your image and to your word. I pray for these students in the days to come and these faculty as we seek to change the world. In Christ's name.